Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Robbie helps companies leverage subscription pricing, digital communities, and freemium models to build deeper relationships with customers. Over the past 21 years, she has worked with over 100 organizations in over 20 industries, like the NBA, Haggerty, The Wall Street Journal, Microsoft, and Ingram Micro. As a keynote speaker, she has presented globally at major conferences, association meetings, trade shows, and elite universities, as well as to private audiences at many of the world's most well-known companies. She hosts the podcast, Subscription Stories, where she sits down with business leaders to discuss how they're using subscription pricing and membership models to redefine the biggest industries and generate predictable recurring revenue. Robbie has also developed and taught nine video courses for LinkedIn Learning on business topics ranging from innovation to customer success and membership. Her first book, The Membership Economy, Find Your Super Users, Master the Forever Transaction, and Build Recurring Revenue, anticipated and defined the massive transformation from ownership to membership and the rise of subscription pricing. It was named a top 10 marketing book of all time by Book Authority. Her second book, The Forever Transaction, takes readers through every step of the subscription business process, from initial startup or testing of a new model to scaling the operation for long-term growth and sustainability. Prior to launching Peninsula Strategies, Robbie was a strategy consultant at Booz Allen and Hamilton, a New York City urban fellow, and a Silicon Valley product marketer. She received her MBA from Stanford and graduated with honors from Harvard. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Robbie. Hey, Robbie. Hey, nice to see you, Erica. Nice to see you too. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I feel like it's always much more pressure when I'm speaking with a fellow podcast host. You know, (laughs) I feel like if they're not a host themselves, they don't necessarily understand what it's like to be in our position, but you're a podcast host, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a lot of empathy. Yeah. You understand my position right now. I got to be interesting. I got to keep the conversation moving. Yeah. It's so fun. (laughs) Um, Well, before we get into the meat of the interview, I do typically start every show with a fun icebreaker, and you can take your answer any direction you want. Uh, It can be work-related or life-related. What is something new that you've learned in this past week? I uh, have learned a lot about emerging best practices in pitching. So I have a a 19-year-old son who's a pitcher, and we went down to San Diego this week and spent two days uh, with some different kinds of physical, mental training coaches on what are the best ways to get your peak performance physically. Very cool. Okay. It's so funny when you said pitching, emerging best practices in pitching, I'm thinking, oh, have people been pitching you for investment? Are you looking at pitch decks? (laughs) The other pitching, the The more commonly used version of pitching, which is baseball pitching, I imagine. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny that you say that because you you reminded me when we brought my first daughter home from the hospital and we were living in this apartment in Palo Alto and pulled into the shared garage and there was a really, really nice older woman who lived across the hall from us. And she saw us as we're coming in with our little carrier and the baby and all the baby stuff in the hospital. And she said to me, and I was I was a product marketer at the time. And she said to me, oh, you must be so busy. And I was thinking about, you know, going back to work. And she's like, you know, if you ever need help with your marketing, just let me know. And I thought she meant like, if you ever need help selling products through written communications and customer segmentation, just give me a buzz. And then I was like, oh, she means like going to the grocery store. Supermarketing. Um, Oh my gosh. Supermarketing. Isn't it funny how that works? I feel like sometimes we live in our own little bubbles where people say some words just all the time and we don't even, we like forget the other meaning of it. Like I actually kind of feel like, and we'll get into this later, but I actually feel like the word membership is like that a little bit. Depending on your industry, you have a totally different association with that word. You know, when you work in like the nonprofit space, like membership is a totally different thing than when you are maybe working at like a country club and membership is like, are they part of our country club or not? Like it's so interesting how words can really change based on what you spend all your time doing. Yeah. Context is everything. It really is. Okay. So wait, tell us more about your 19 year old son. So does he want to become a professional pitcher? Is this like more of a hobby? Like walk, it sounds like if you guys went down there, this is a very serious thing for him. Walk me through like his, his sports ambitions. I'm very curious. Yeah. I mean, he's a rising junior in college and he plays baseball at his university. And this is just a way to get better. My husband, who I met in college, was also a baseball player. And I'm not very good at any sports. So <laughs> not either. You and me both. <laughs> so it's all a new path. My husband played in the minor leagues for seven years. So it's become a bigger part of my life, but I still like there's still so much I don't know. Yeah, but it's so cool. It's I, I think sometimes sports and business are very similar in that they really are their own language. And um, there's such a team activity and it can be really, really rewarding. Is your 19-year-old son your only child? I have three children. I have a 25-year-old, 22-year-old, and then he's my baby. He's 19. Oh, that's awesome. And what are, what are the 25 and the 22-year-old, what are they like? What are their personalities? They're awesome. they're all awesome. Isn't that what you want your parents to always say about you? Like, what's the first word you want them to say? Like, they're awesome. They're kind. They're cool. Who cares about all the other stuff? Yeah. Right. They're awesome, kind, and cool. So my oldest one is, see, she worked, uh, after she graduated, she worked on a movie about the race to develop a vaccine for COVID. And then she did her post-bac. So, you know, completing her pre-med requirements after she studied history and literature. So, I think doing the movie really convinced her. She'd been thinking about it for a long time that she really wanted to be a doctor. So she's working now at UCSF at their breast cancer center. Wow. And then my middle daughter is a rising senior in college. She's probably the most businessy of my kids and uh, interested in consulting too. And then Nate, is he's a rising junior. Wow. That's so awesome. It sounds like all your kids have their own thing. I feel like that's such a mark yes. of a great parent is like how authentic those kids are to who they're meant to be. And often they're, they all come out how they come out. They're all often so different. And can you really nurture that part of them that wants to be their most fullest authentic self? Yeah. I think the metaphor that I've heard that for me is the most helpful for parenting is it's like somebody hands you a seed and says, this is going to be a flower and you don't know what kind of flower it's going to be. And so I think the whole game of parenting is like, what is helping this plant to thrive And what does it look like? And I think 
if you want to just, you know, take this metaphor all the way through, like if you get a rose, but you were hoping for a tulip and you start cutting leaves and petals, you're going to end up with a mess and you're never going to end up with a tulip. Like you can't make a tulip out of a rose, but you know, many people think a rose is a very beautiful, um, wonderful flower. So I think trying to observe who who they are or or kind of what they're, you said they're most authentic, but also I'd say authentic and best yeah. self to give them kind of all the, all the nutrients they need to flourish. I love that. I love carrying the metaphor all the way through. And I'm going to take it also even further and be like, yeah, please. you've planted, we're just going to go for it. You've planted the seed and you start to see early signs. Like, is this becoming a rose? Is this is becoming a tulip. Like, oh, you mm-hmm. see a little thorn on the stem before you even see the rose. And you're like, oh, it might end up being a rose. And so part of it too is even like while they're growing, while the yeah. flower's growing, it's like identifying the little, like, oh, they just sprouted a leaf. Like they might actually be a tulip and like really seeing those little signs, I think even before it becomes its fully fleshed thing versus seeing the leaf pop out and be like, oh my God, no, it can't be a tulip and cutting it. You know, it's really supporting them along the way too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what happens, you know, a lot of times is we are all flowers ourselves, And so you sort of assume, well, I'm a tulip. So why isn't she behaving? Yeah. Like, why does she have thorns? It's so prickly. Why doesn't she have a nice smooth stalk? And and I think this is just as true for us to do for ourselves, right? We're, we're also trying to figure out what we are, right? And where do I thrive? And what kind of environment do I need? And so many people, I think, when they're thinking about like, what, what job do you want? When I talk to young people who are not interviewing for a job, but just talking frankly, they're like, I want, I want to do something like there's always, there's always a few people who are like, I am so passionate and clear. Like my husband, I know I want to be a baseball player, like not hard to, you know, go, you know, follow your passion. Yeah. But for for the most of us, we don't have a passion. Like we just want to do something that we're good at, that we really enjoy, that we can become passionate about. And I think that journey of figuring out what are you really good at that the world values that is meaningful to you is, you know, not, not always easy. It's really hard. And I think it's especially hard in your 20s when you have some people that are like your husband where they are the baseball player, they are maybe the doctor. Like my sister always wanted to be a doctor and she's a doctor. And it's really hard to see there's some of those people. And then there's some of the other people in your 20s where they're still just like wonderful, beautiful contributors to the world, but they don't have that clarity. Is there any like advice that you give to your kids about that? Like, I mean, I imagine too your daughter who studied history and literature and now she's going to be a doctor. I'm sure that was a lot of processing and figuring out and questioning, reflecting, is there any piece of advice that you feel like you always come back to, to help you figure out what that thing is when it isn't crystal, crystal clear from day one? Yeah. I mean, there's a few things that I think are valuable. One of them is if you don't know what you want to do, then you have a couple options. One is pick three op- three paths that you could imagine might be the right path, sort of force yourself to think about it, and then say, what are some skills Um, and experiences that would help me if that ends up being my path. That can be a slightly more focused way than sort of like what I don't advise people to do, which is probably pretty controversial, is I don't advise people to just follow your bliss, right? Because then we would all end up on a beach teaching yoga. And there are some people who are like, that is the only thing I can imagine doing. So that is what I'm going to do. But for a lot of us, maybe that's not what we want to do for our whole life. And it doesn't really open up necessarily a lot of other doors. It, it may, but the advice, I mean, I'm just trying to be candid. The advice I, I give it. is like, yeah. think about what doors you're opening. You know, if you don't know what you want to do, take a job where you're going to learn a lot. 
and where you're going to learn a lot and other people are going to recognize what you learn because you always learn a lot, right? If I went and worked as a, a movie theater ticket taker, I would learn a tremendous amount and it might be very meaningful to me. So I'm not knocking it, but I don't know who else would value those skills. I've done a bunch of courses, as you mentioned so kindly, for LinkedIn learning. And one of the things that LinkedIn's done a really good job at is breaking down skills, yeah. jobs into skills, right? And so you look at the jobs that look exciting to you, like what would you want to do in five years or 10 years? And you say, what are the skills that those people have? And then think about, you know, maybe I should do something that is at the intersection of appealing to me and developing skills that might get me to that path that I think I might want to go down. I think it's a good combination to keep your options open, right? Because you don't want to like be so narrowly focused that, you know, especially in the world of work where jobs disappear overnight and new industries pop up overnight where you could never know you were going to do that. Right. But at the same time, having some kind of North Star, I think there's a difference between saying this is my path where it's like so defined and this is my North Star. I'm kind of generally walking South, Southeast. Love that. It's such a practical approach. I feel like a lot of times when I talk to people about this topic, they don't always have clear questions to ask. So I appreciate you doing that. And you're right. The real truth is you don't always follow your bliss. And it's really lucky when you can. And I think actually what's so interesting about your job specifically, and we'll get into your background, of course, is you know when you see the word consultant, at least for me, I think they must be following their bliss. Like if they're so good at something <laughs> that they can get paid to do it, they must be following their bliss. I think of, you know, like designers or marketing consultants or whatever, like they've become so specialized and so great. That must be the thing. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's just something that you can monetize because you're just really good at it, but it's not necessarily your deepest passion. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about, obviously you have a very impressive background. You went to Harvard, you know, you went to Stanford for your MBA. Just maybe let's quickly talk about your childhood and like what you wanted to be when you grew up before we get to the consulting bit. Did you always know you wanted to do business? You contrasted yourself a little bit to your husband who always knew. What did you want to do when you grew up? And what was your experience at Harvard and then Stanford with figuring that all out? I mean, the thing I remember from a pretty young age is I wanted to be in charge. That was the person I was. You know, I, I was an organizer. I was a convener. I was a, you know, let's do a garage sale. Let's do a carnival in our driveway. Let's do a camp and charge their neighbors. And like, I was that kid, but I also was very much a straight arrow wanting to do whatever was sort of expected from me that came naturally and didn't feel hard. Like I was very comfortable sort of, I didn't feel like I was pushing up against things that, that I didn't want to do. And I liked working hard and being recognized for it. And then when I got to college, what was really interesting. So what my parents said to me, which I've sort of said to my kids as well, is, look, there are certain schools that you can get into where you can pretty much get almost any job from almost any concentration. Yeah. And there are a lot of places where if you go to that school and you follow your bliss, you might not be able to get a job. And so they sort of dangled that a little bit as a, as a sort of a carrot and said, you know, if you get into Harvard, you can study whatever you want. Because Harvard's Harvard. It's enough. I mean, it, it, that's, I mean, that's at least then that's, that was pretty true. There, you could kind of do what, you know, I, there were lots of examples of people who had studied fine arts and gone into engineering or, you know, gotten some kind of training or done a master's program afterwards and, you know, cleaned up their resume in, in a year or less. So I studied poetry because I could. 
And when I went to interview for job, I knew I wanted to be in business. I knew I wanted to be in business or law from the time I was about five years old. But I went to interview for my first job. And I remember it was for a, a real estate investment trust in Texas. And the guy interviewing me says to me, you know, with his, I'm not going to do his drawl, but he says to me, so honey, first of all, honey, um, you're obviously really smart. You're a very good student. You've done a lot of activities. How do I know that you're not going to just spend your days looking out the window and thinking about poems instead of doing my spreadsheets, which probably aren't as fun or interesting, right? Whoa. And, you know, what I said to him, and I think he was sort of throwing that out as a softball, like what he, you know, it's like, I'm going to throw that out to you and you're going to tell me how awesome you are, right? And so I told him, first of all, if I sat and looked out the window instead of doing whatever I was asked to do, I wouldn't have gotten where I am, right? Like, I do what I'm supposed to do. And right now I'm doing it with poetry. And then I made a case for how, you know, poetry teaches you how to think and how to ask good questions and how to analyze and how to have rigor and how, you know, a poem is often very spare. And so you have to really literally read between the lines and how I would be applying that same creativity and ability to connect the dots to his data points. And ultimately that, you know, I ended up, you know, not having trouble getting a job and, um, well, that's a very Harvard answer of you. That was a very perfect answer. Well, <laughs> you did a very good job just then. I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't sure, you know, in, in the, I, I mean, inside I was like, oh my God, maybe I would be, you know, what is he thinking? You know, does, could I do this job? Like, can I work with a person like this who even thinks that? And, but uh, I did not end up working there, by the way. I did not end up going into uh, real estate investing. But it was an option and you were able to, I think that so much of figuring out how you, portray your story to other people is is how you basically connect the dots between what your major was and what you want to do now. And you need to have like what you just did there, that storytelling ability, I think is actually like one of, if not the most important thing, because you could have been a fine arts major, you could have been an engineer, you could have been a poetry major, whichever. You have to be able to tell that story. So I feel like, I don't know if that feels very important to you, but so much I think yeah. of being a 20-something with these kind of miscellaneous jobs is... Mm -hmm. What's, what did you learn and what's the story you're telling now about yeah. how that's going to apply to what you need to do? I feel like people are very unfair about this because when you look back, right, like I'm in my 50s, right? I can look back and I can tell you a story of why the reason I'm so successful now is because I studied poetry, right? I can tell you the story based on the dots, right? Where that is a skill that, you know, people develop. But looking forward, coming out of college with a poet, you know, doing poetry. And then I went, so here's what I did. I I graduated, I applied to law school, got into law school, deferred law school, went and worked for the city of New York doing real estate development. And at the end of the year, I panicked and said, I don't want to be a lawyer. So I stayed a second year. I withdrew my application. Three months into that, I reapplied to law school because I was like, wait, I made a mistake, but then I made another mistake. Like I made a mistake applying and then I made a mistake withdrawing and now I need to apply again. And then I didn't end up going. Did you get in the second time? I did. Because I can connect those dots like no one's business, right? You are a dot connector. Um, yep. I am a dot connector. But then I was like, I think I want to go to business school. And I was in a dead-end job. It was a great job, but it had a dead end because of this poetry background. They're like, we, you can't run a real estate development project. You have no skills. And so I had to get a job where I could get skills and where I could get into business school. So I kind of worked backwards this time, like I was describing. And I was like, okay how am I going to get into business school? It's like consulting, investment banking. And those were two places that have amazing training. They still do to this day. 
I know they're for a lot of people out of fashion, but really that you work really hard. They actually pay you to get trained. They rotate you through different things. They have a list of skills they're trying to develop for you. So I had to make a case of like poetry to real estate to consumer products consulting. Incredible. But you were able to do it because you were also thinking at that point, right? I want to go to business mm-hmm. school in let's say two, three, four, five years. Yeah. What do I need to do now? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And and it was hard. Like I'm making this all sound easy, but there were many interviews like the one where the guy asked me about looking out the window or when people said, usually we hire people for, you know, I mean, at the time, usually we hire people for big consulting firms right out of college. You're two years out of college. And why were you working for the city of New York? Like that's a random job, you know? Yeah. Well, I hope people are also a little more forgiving now, you know, as times have changed. I think I like to think maybe I'm biased because of the world I live in with, you know, entrepreneurship, that people appreciate unique backgrounds and that they are more open-minded to the like not Ivy League, you know, not traditional business or computer science degree. I do think we've gotten better with time, but I can only imagine even, you know, back then too, that it was just, you had to do a lot of that legwork to get them to see it, you know, to really get them to see the dots. You're saying the world that you live in now, I mean, I think it's not just that it's the entrepreneurial world, because I've, I've been in that world for quite some time. I think it's also that the last, let's call it the last 10 years in the entrepreneurial world has been all up and to the right, nonstop up and to the right. So they're like, we'll take, you know, they always, you know, we'll take athletes, we'll take people who are just creative and smart. We don't care about your background and we don't care about your experience and we can teach you. And I think it was a really good time to be in an entrepreneurial tech yeah. role, right? There was a rising tide. Yeah. It was funny. I was looking back at when the term unicorn was coined in 2013. Eileen coined it, Eileen Lee, which you, you may know this. And at the time there were only 39 unicorns, companies valued at over a billion dollars for our non-business listeners. And as of this year, there's over 1,200. So we've really just, I mean, talk about the past decade, like you said, things have gone absolutely haywire. Okay. So you ended up getting into Stanford Business School, which is incredible. And I know soon after that, you started your own consulting firm, which you've been doing now forever. I'd love to hear about the path from like being in business school. Did you think you wanted to do your own thing? And then what led you to actually saying, I'm going to start this consulting firm? And you've been doing it for a couple of decades now, which is absolutely incredible. So walk me through that time and what you were thinking you wanted to do. So after business school, I went into product management and um, product marketing. And I got laid off while I was on maternity leave the day I got back with my second child with Annabelle. And, you know, I (laughs) I was like, I need to be in. Could you sue at all or no? That wasn't a thing back then. No. Well, it's not that it wasn't a thing back then. It's the same thing now. It's that if you want to sue for being wrongfully terminated, you have to show that it was due to the thing that you're saying that you were wrongfully terminated for. So as a person who had had a baby, they were like, well, is there anybody who was laid off who didn't just have a baby? Yeah, there were a lot of people. Is there anybody who just had a baby who was not laid off? Yes. So it was hard for me to say they did it because I just had a baby. Did they lay off other people in my role? Yes. So there were like almost any way you looked at it, they could say, look, we laid off other mid-level, like I think I was a director at the time, mid-level product and marketing people. One of my best friends was there in a, in a very similar role, he was also laid off, you know, so he was a man, he didn't have a baby, you know, he didn't have children, he was laid off. So like, they could look at that and say, somebody just like you got laid off that didn't have a baby, 
And so, but it was still sort of scary, right? Because we had just bought a house, you know, my, my income was sort of part of the package that we were using to pay our, our mortgage and everything. Um, so I said, I, I need to be in control of my, my own destiny, at least until the youngest kid is out of diapers. And so I said, I'm going to consult. And at first I just did whatever I thought I could do. Like I was kind of available for hire. If I could do the work and they could pay my rate, I would do it. And then pretty quick, I realized that I needed to have a focus. If I wanted to do this for a while, I needed a focus. Otherwise, you're just a contractor, right? And there is a distinction between being a consultant and a contractor um, from my perspective, regardless of what people call it. A consultant is paid for their expertise, either in a process or in a domain. And a contractor is arms and legs filling a role, right? A contractor is managed by the company. So I did a lot of that, you know, where I'd go in and, you know, somebody be on maternity leave for three months, I'd come in, I'd be the interim head of marketing, or I'd come in and be a product manager. You know, and, and like, you're almost literally sitting at that person's desk, handling what's coming in, yeah. handling, you know, what's going out, going to their meetings. Maybe you even, you know, have a phone number there or a business card or an email. You look like an employee. And I realized for my temperament, I wanted to be a consultant. I wanted to be an expert on something. And I wanted to be hired for my knowledge and not managed by my client. Yeah, that's so valuable. That's such an interesting insight. And I feel like it takes people doing it and hearing from people like yourself to even understand the difference because it makes a lot of sense hearing you say it. But I think because it isn't as common, people don't always know, understand even like what is a freelancer? What is a consultant? What is a contractor? So how did you end up figuring out what that thing was that you wanted to become an expert in? And how did you become an expert in it? I mean, obviously you had a lot of skills already. You'd been doing a lot of marketing. How did you figure out what that thing is? And obviously you've gotten even more narrow now and you've got those books, which are, you're really an expert in something, the number one person in something. But in those early days, how did you figure out even the lane you wanted to swim in? Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's funny because I remember at the time I was trying to figure it out, it took years. Like, where I was like, what is my thing? What is my expertise? I'm, you know, and I use different language. Like the last couple of companies I'd worked for, I'd been, you know, in product at, you know, what would today be called SaaS companies. So I did understand the power of recurring revenue and the, the new kind of model of, you know, if you design a product for recurring revenue, you actually are designing it differently and it's, you know, more configurable and less customized. And like, I was sort of thinking about that. And then I was like, okay, what's my specialty going to be? And I was like, well, strategy, which is what where I'd come from, that's too broad. Product management, that's too broad. Because it's hard to be credible as one person and say, like you said, you're so kind. You know, I am, I think, you know, a top expert on subscription models. You are. I can say you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for, <laughs> I will yeah. quote you on that. Yeah. Um, thank you. But, you know, like it's harder to say I am the expert on strategy, right? Yeah. There's all kinds of academics and, you know, consulting firms, senior partners and career authors who've researched and written on that topic. So I was like, well, I have to, what it like, and I kept thinking about different intersections. And then I think my fifth client was Netflix and low key, just coincidentally, know, not a big deal, just Netflix. Fifth client. Well, at the time, like, you know, my in-laws had never heard of them. My parents had never heard of them, right? It was. What year was this? What year was it when they were not as big of a deal? 2002. So at that time, yeah. they were still three DVDs out at a time. They were just getting their national footprint. So the way that they launched, I know it's sort of like, feels like ancient history, but the way that they launched was region by region, distribution center by distribution center, because 
they had to guarantee a three-day turnaround time for the for the DVD to, you know, if you sent the DVD from your house to them, you had to get your new DVD within three days. And so they had to think really carefully about who they could take as a client, as a customer. And so I started working with them. I mean, just to give you a sense, they had a U.S. footprint by that point. They they said, we're very excited. We can now do national advertising because anybody in the United States, and I think maybe except for people with P.O. boxes or people in Alaska and Hawaii. I was going to say, I think maybe not Alaska. <laughs> That's always the last right. one. Yeah. Right. But anybody else we can, you know, serve them. And then over the my tenure there, I worked on a bunch of different projects, but they launched an experiment in the UK and I think they came back. They started researching and experimenting with different kinds of streaming, downloading, going through um, consoles, which I think was one of the early ways that they were able to stream either through your like Xbox or your, um, I guess it was TiVo, you know, which was like yeah. for recording content. Yeah. So that was kind of the era. But what really struck me when you're asking, you know, how do you find something? Yeah. I was kept thinking, what, what can I really, that's big enough and juicy enough that I would enjoy studying it, but is also narrow enough that I could really get my arms around it and claim some expertise. And I loved their business model. I loved how focused they were. I loved their clear set of metrics. I loved how indistractable they were. Like people would come in all the time and be like, you know, Netflix, your your envelopes would be the perfect size for video games. Why don't you do that? Or, hey, Netflix, you have such a great customer base. Why don't you sell them subscriptions to TV Guide or, you know, some, you know, TV magazine? And they're like, no, we do three DVDs out at a time. We do streaming. They're very focused and they're very focused on retention, which I had not worked with any companies that cared as much about consistency and retention as they did. And that was sort of, and then people started calling and saying, hey, we heard you, like friends and business school friends and, you know, people I'd worked with were like, hey, we heard you did some work for Netflix. We, you know, want to be the Netflix of some other thing. So I worked with SurveyMonkey and I worked with Intuit. Uh, I think those are my next two subscription, well, companies that were bought by those companies. Wow. That's, I mean, it's also really helps to attach yourself to a company that's growing that you really feel strongly is going to be around. I mean, you maybe didn't have obviously the foresight to see what what it's become. Uh, 2002 is uh, a couple decades ago. Or by stock. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Yeah, but that's really powerful. So it sounds like it really just took years, but you continue to basically do these case studies with different companies and really get clear on like, I understand this specific type of model of like recurring revenue and what you've now since coined the membership economy, which is so interesting. And, you know, you've obviously written a couple books. I can see one behind you now. The Forever Transaction. Yeah, there's two. There's yeah. two. Membership economies that right above me. Oh, yeah. I can see it now peeping out of your head. I, it was easier to see the other one. So let's maybe talk about the membership economy. How did you coin that terminology? And I know I hinted at it earlier. The word membership is such an interesting word. I'm curious where that came from. Yeah. So I kind of was going back and forth between subscription and membership, right? And the, the issue with subscription is it's a pricing decision. And for me, what was really important, even with Netflix that has such an excellent subscription model, was the way they treated customers like members, that they had, a, I think, a mindset for membership. And you're exactly right about the, the word having different meanings. One of the biggest challenges I've had is membership with a small M or a big M. So a lot of companies have products that they call the membership, right? So they're not a membership organization, but they sell a membership. So like a lot of professional associations have a membership that you can buy, but are you a member 
let's say, of like the association, ASAE, the association um, that's for association executives, if you don't have their membership product, but you go to all their conferences, you know, you read all of their publications, are you a member? You're a lowercase m member. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, so that has been sort of a challenge. So anyway, I liked membership as a word because it was, it, it really put the focus on the mindset. Like when you think about what you're a member of, there's, you know, most people usually describe it as, you know, something I feel loyal to. It's something I just belong no matter what. It's forever. It's, you know, I'm a member of my family. I'm a member of my, you know, religious organization. I'm a member of my library. <laughs> and I think that is actually more helpful. Like if you think about Apple hardware, don't let's set aside their, their subscriptions, which is only in the last several years. They had very much of a membership mindset from the beginning. And what I mean by that is, People will say, oh, I'm an Apple person, right? Like that, they would just say, I'm an Apple guy, I'm an Apple person. And it's like, so, you know, I had an Apple, uh, I had an iMac, right? And then, you know, I needed a a phone and I heard that they had their new phones. I was like, okay, I guess I'll get one because I'm an Apple person. And then I had the iPad and I had the iPod. And then I went to them and I was like, okay, I need a printer, right? They're like, oh, we don't sell printers. I'm like, oh, well, then tell me what I should buy. And that is a sign of a membership, right? Because I go to them first for all things relating to my technology footprint. And when they actually can't provide it, I trust them so much that I'm like, well, tell me what to do then. Wow. Yeah. And there's no subscription there. There's no, the subscription, they have the right. If they had wanted to at that time, they could have said, well, Robbie, if you pay us a monthly subscription, we'll just come to your house and set everything up and give you everything you need. And I probably would have said, okay right? Because I don't like to go to the store. I don't like to buy the stuff. I just like to have it and have it always working. Yeah. It's so powerful to hear you talk about. I think you, I watched a video of you talking about membership as a mindset, not a product, which is kind of what you're hinting at now, which I think is so powerful and your examples really help. It makes it also feel attainable for a lot of companies, which is really interesting. How do you balance, let's say an Apple that's part of the membership economy that doesn't necessarily have recurring revenue on like a monthly basis or an annual basis. I mean, you're very much forever attached to them. You're going to buy the new iPhone. You're going to buy the new whatever, but it's not like you're paying for a subscription. So how do you think about that? How do you judge like what fits the membership economy and what doesn't? Yeah. So what I write about and what I teach and what I do with my clients is to help them build a business with a member mindset, with a membership mindset. And so Most of them, the vast majority of them come to me because I'm the subscription person, right? They want to do subscription. They want to fix their subscription, whatever. But but sometimes I'm like, I don't think you need a subscription. I think you need to focus on the long-term goal that the customer is trying to achieve, a long-term outcome they're trying to achieve. And subscription may or may not fit. That's kind of how I think about helping them and why I don't always say you have to have a subscription. It's much more about aligning the company with the customer's ongoing goal or the problem that they're trying to solve on an ongoing basis. So that might be, I'm trying to get and stay fit. I'm trying to get and stay current on the professional world around me so that I can thrive. I'm trying to minimize the stress that I feel at dinner time to figure out what's for dinner tonight, right? And once you know that, then you can say, okay, well, we can offer you a subscription or we can offer you a pay-as-you-go. The mindset of that consumer is as long as I have this ongoing goal, I can go to this vendor and they'll solve their problem, the problem for me. So that's the first place I go, right? That's really what we're trying to do. And I think this works for almost any business where 
the customer has choices and where you hope to see that customer at least again and again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's extremely fascinating. Talk to me a little bit more about this like forever transaction language that you've coined and you wrote a whole book about. How do you think about the forever transaction? Is that just the idea that when people are loyal to your brand and they feel like they can always come to you with their needs around a certain goal, they'll always forever buy from you? Or walk me through what that phrase is that you have coined. Yeah. So the companies want a forever transaction. They're the ones they are like, I want to lock in. This is what people say, right? I want to lock them in and I want them to have to keep coming back to me forever. Right. And I, I understand where they're coming from. I find that kind of a little unseemly and, um, you know, not usually a very effective place to come from. Yeah. That's not a member mindset, but okay. (laughs) No, no. And here's the thing is that if you want a forever, this is what I tell my clients, if you want a forever transaction, you need to make a forever promise to them. What am I going to get forever in exchange for my undying loyalty? Right. And it's like, well, like with Netflix, I think it's been professionally created, you know, a large selection of professionally created video content delivered in the most efficient way possible with cost certainty. So the price has not stayed the same, but you do have cost certainty. You never get a late fee or an extra fee. And like you and I, if we have the same subscription, we pay the same amount. Now, that is not true if you and I are both subscribing to the Wall Street Journal. I guarantee it. There is no chance we are paying the same price. There are too many different offers. And it has to do with where you live, when you signed up, how you read it, whether or not you threatened to cancel uh, at some point. Um, but Netflix has, you know, there's no special deals. There's no special pricing. There's no weird partnerships. Cost certainty used to be the most efficient way to get your DVDs was in the mail. Now the most efficient way to get your content is through streaming, right? You know, at some point they might just zing it right into your brain. <laughs> that might right? be the most efficient I mean, way. Right. It, it changes, right? Yeah. But but it's like that North Star thing, right? They're not saying the most efficient, you know, we do the best DVD distribution of any company. They say we, because I don't want the best DVD distribution. I want great content, in the easiest way possible. And I don't want late fees. I don't want to be surprised by the cost. And that's what they've been promising, you know, for, for 20 years. Yeah. They've done a good job of it. And they maybe have your voice in the back of their minds as they're doing it. How do you think about the community element? So that's one thing that I, when I look at businesses, like I get really excited about when, when community is a moat, right? When they've got all these members that are so obsessive about what that thing is, what that company is, what their promise is. How do you think about the importance of community and how do you think about companies that maybe don't have that to start? Can they manufacture that? Is it something that you think is part of that member mindset? Like walk me through kind of how you think about community. Yeah. So community is a really powerful, um, like you said, a moat, a sticky factor, a reason that people don't cancel. A lot of people join for something else and stay for the community. So for example, you might join you know, some kind of a professional learning organization because you need your credential or because there's a course that they offer that you need because you're trying to get a new job. But you stay often because of the your, your fellow learners or because of the faculty and how warm and helpful they are. And so it's very powerful. People don't usually join for the community, but they often stay for the community. So I think a lot about acquisition benefits and retention benefits. And I think in most cases, the community is a retention benefit. And it's funny, people will say, I joined for this, but I stayed for that. The other thing I'd say about community is a lot of organizations think it's as easy as 
getting a platform that supports community and letting people say, oh, people, the community, it's organic. I believe in organic community. Like, that's just not true. Like, most communities start with some really active preceding and back channel machinations, right? Asking good friends to post things, asking other people to respond to the posts. You know, in, if you're starting a conference as a way of creating community or a meetup, right? How do you do that? Well, you get a few really appealing people to show up and then everybody else comes. And then once everybody else is there, they form relationships with the not famous people and then they want to come the next time. But that first step of building a community, you either have to, you know, seed it in some way or you have to transplant a pre-existing community in some way. So Facebook, for example, they just transplanted pre-existing communities, right? They just said, okay, all of you students at this school, you're now part of Facebook. And they all came on together and they already had friendships, right? They already had relationships. And then they grew them and reached out to new people and found new connections, but they weren't showing up alone. The other way of creating community, so you either do that or you bring people with some other uh, offer that doesn't depend on the community, some other value, come for the course, and then when you have enough people, then you start investing in the community. People come for the course and stay for the community. Or like with LinkedIn, like when I joined LinkedIn, it's a long time ago, it was pretty much a place to post your resume, right? It was a place where you could tell people, this is where, you know, if you want to learn about me, go to my LinkedIn profile. And then you could link in with other people and they encouraged that from the beginning. But when I joined LinkedIn, I was a very early member, I mean, almost nobody I knew. If you weren't, if you weren't around my age and you weren't in tech, you weren't on LinkedIn. Now, you know, my 80-year-old dad is on LinkedIn and my 19-year-old son is on LinkedIn, right? And everybody yeah. in between. Yeah. Thank you for walking through that. It's such a refreshing take. I feel like a lot of people, the word community is so nebulous sometimes that they don't always have such practical, you know, examples to talk through it, which I think is really, really valuable. Do you think that, and I don't, I don't know if LinkedIn is maybe the example we, we should use here, but do you think that founders, let's say at the pre-seed or the seed, they're very, very early. They need to be thinking with a member mindset and with a community mindset from day one. Or do you think these are things that can evolve over time? How do you think about like the time frame of it? Because like you said, with LinkedIn, that came later. But then sometimes you see these really do pop up from day one. And that is something that's very intentional on the founder's part. So how do you think about the timeline of it? So for me, and remember, I'm a hammer and everything looks like a nail. But I would say, unless you are confident that your customer has no choice, you're the only game in town, you have a patent advantage, regulatory advantage, some kind of you know non-relationship driven moat that protects you, then you should be thinking about membership because you should be designing your business model for customer lifetime value, for people to return, right? You should be thinking from the beginning, what features am I putting into my product? How am I pricing? How am I communicating my, my message in such a way that the people who come are intending to stay, right? That I think is important for almost anyone, unless like you have the patent on the cure yeah. for cancer or something where, you know, who cares if you're not nice and you don't focus on the future, nobody has a choice. Community is a little bit of a different thing. Not every company needs community. Um, Netflix, I mean, just because we were talking about them, they considered community, I think, pretty carefully and didn't end up thinking that that was an important thing to invest. They did use the power of their community in their algorithm that helps predict, you know, if you like these movies, you'll probably like this movie, but it doesn't have to do with my friends. It has to do with people who watch movies like me. So it's not really community. It's more about a network effect. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a subtle nuance. 
Yeah, super helpful. So the answer basically member mindset, good for everyone day one, community, it depends. Good for everyone, unless your customer yeah. is never going to come back. Yeah. Last gas for a hundred miles, you know, hopefully wedding dresses, like, you know, how many wedding dresses is someone going to buy? Yeah. Or you have the patent, you have the geographic advantage. Yeah. But those, that tends to not be where the world is going. Like software is becoming easier and easier to create and the moats are getting lesser and lesser, right? Like back in the day, I feel like you used to maybe be the only provider or the only something in a certain place, but now we've made yeah. it so easy to create things that it's actually well, very hard. Yeah. But if, if you have the COVID vaccine, right. which is a pretty recent thing, like, you know, the, the building relationships with your customers is less important, right? Pharmaceuticals, less important. If you're the only hospital in town, if you're the only person who can provide this kind of treatment, and you see it, like you can almost say what if the places where you have a worse customer experience, where you feel more like a number, less like your opinion matters, it's probably not a business that lends itself well to the true concept of membership. Yeah, absolutely. I think also those tend to be, because I'm so deep in the world of like software investing. So those tend to be more like other kinds of, you know, you mentioned a biotech with vaccines, more like brick and mortar. They tend to be a little bit outside the the wheelhouse I see. But yeah, I, I absolutely hear you. I could keep asking you about this all day, every day, but I want to respect your time. So I have one final question. Um, we ask all our guests this, if there is one piece of advice that you could give to every 20 something, what is that one piece of advice that you would give them? Be kind to yourself. Yeah. That's a really good one. Who, who, who coined that? Is there someone we should attribute that to? I feel like everyone says be kind to yourself. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Either. I don't know. I appreciate it. Can you let everyone know where they can find you on social media and where they should get your your two wonderful books? What's the best spot for them to find everything? The books are everywhere the books are sold. So easy to find. Or you can just type in the names and uh, buy from my website. Uh, and you can find out everything you want to know about me at my website, RobbieKelmanBaxter.com. Or, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. But I because I'm a LinkedIn instructor, I post the most there. That's really where my business content is. And I, and I try to comment on all things, you know, subscription and membership almost every day. Amazing. So people can continue to learn more and hear some more case studies. Thank you so much, Robbie, for being here. This was so fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.